How does that animal make a living? That's a phrase the biologist Larry Heaney used on an earlier episode of The Shape of the World. He used it to ask what an animal eats and how it survives. To make a living, each species of animal has its niche, its gimmick. Some animals survive by using camouflage so they don't get noticed. Some are aggressive. Some use poisons. And some animals make a living by being very, very fast. I'm Jill Riddell, and this is The Shape of the World. Sailfish swim through the ocean at a speed of 68 miles per hour. Cheetahs run on land at about the same speed. An elk can run 45 miles an hour. We think of humans who run in track meets as being pretty fast. We give them nicknames like Dash and Lightning. But really, as animals go, even our track stars are slow. Maybe 15 miles an hour? Speed is not our thing. But there is an animal who shares our cities with us for whom speed is everything. It lives in Philadelphia, Detroit, Manhattan, Atlanta, Salt Lake City, and in my hometown of Chicago. Right in our urban downtowns. And to give you an idea of just how fast this animal is, well, you know the proverbial length of a football field? That's a distance it can travel in a single second. Hurtling through the sky at 200 miles per hour, it's without a doubt the fastest animal on Earth, the peregrine falcon. Peregrines are flashy and they're high profile and it's, ooh, this bird that goes faster than any other bird. That's the scientist who knows all about peregrine falcons. My name is Mary Hennen and I am the assistant collection manager for birds at the Field Museum. My own particular research interest would be with peregrine falcons. The program Mary Hennen runs has reintroduced peregrine falcons to urban habitats, and it tracks their whereabouts and progress. It's responsible for bringing peregrine falcons back from the brink of extinction. And the initial phases had to do with helping reintroduce the species back into the wild. And as it was in the wild establishing itself, it became monitoring the population. The peregrine falcon is the world record holder for speed. It has a handsome movie star charisma. Its story is worthy of a soap opera. What with it practically going extinct and then, when we least expected it, coming roaring back to life. Plus, it reinvented itself. Instead of following the conventional path of a wild and noble beast living in a mysterious, faraway forest, it nests on urban skyscrapers. That's right. We humans almost killed their entire species, and now they defiantly set up their nests on top of our nests. So you're helping building owners and how do you deal with this urban falcon now living where they are. Think of me as the liaison from the bird to the public. First time I saw a peregrine, her name was Harriet. So you not only saw the bird, you saw one with a name. I saw one with a name. So Harriet was a female peregrine that was released in Minnesota as part of that reintroduction process. And she came to uh, Chicago. She paired up with a male. His name was Jingles. He was part of our first release 
which took place in 1986, and they paired up together in 1987 and chose to nest on a building near the Sears Tower. So in 1988, I went to see that first peregrine nest site, and it was the first one in the state of Illinois since 1951. So we went to watch her, and we were in another building up at a higher elevation, sort of looking towards that building that they were um, nesting on, and she was flying around the Sears Tower going after a yellow-bellied sapsucker, which is a type of woodpecker. So my first sight of a peregrine was in this phenomenal dive after another bird, and it was just, it's one of those things that's astounding that just sticks with you. Well, that's kind of amazing, not just to see the peregrine falcon, but also to see it in conjunction with seeing this other wonderful bird, this yellow-bellied sapsucker, and to have that be your first experience. A lot of people can watch peregrines for years before they happen to catch sight of hunting behavior. I think behavior is fascinating, though, so I could sit there and watch them just preening and You know, we have web cameras up on a lot of our pairs, so it allows people to get close to the nature to be able to watch the peregrines without actually interfering or or getting too close to them. Can you tell us what banding is and and why you do it? Think of putting a, a little bracelet on the bird's leg. We put two on. One is a Fish and Wildlife Service band, and that one is usually a nine digit number. And it runs the whole circumference of the band. So if you get a photograph or later or something and you're trying to read that band, you're only getting a portion of that number. So to make it easier for a scientist or, or a photographer or anybody to try to figure out who that is, we put an additional band on. It's just another ID band. We have various combinations of black over red or black over green, and they can have numbers, they can have letters, they can be vertical or horizontal. I would encourage you to go to the Field Museum's website, put the word in Peregrine, get to my pages, and there's a whole thing with pictures and explanation on trying to read those bands. We named one after Ron Santo. I adored Ron Santo. I'm a huge Cub fan, by the way. Santo fledged out of our Waukegan nest That fall, he was sighted down in Ecuador. That tells me something about migration patterns, migration distance, and that. If you didn't have that ban on, I wouldn't know that. If you look at, I was talking about Harriet, the first peregrine I had seen, and I knew she came out of that Minnesota release because reading the bans. I know how old she was every year she was breeding and that. So I can learn things about longevity. For instance, I can tell you things like when we first started releasing birds and they were first coming back into the wild breeding, you had a lot of one-year-old birds breeding that we saw. You generally don't see that now. Two is a typical age, it's more likely three or four. That's because early on there was no competition for those nest sites. They were able to get in there, get a pair and breed. Now with those sites being established by resident birds, you have to be a little more older, a little more experienced to be able to kick the bird out that's been breeding there. So on on the other end of that time frame, we used to, um, our oldest breeder was 18 years old. Peregrines can live up to 20 years, low 20s, and captivity is always longer than the wild. Now I see if it's a 14, 15, that's 16, we're in a real old bird breeding because those younger birds can outcompete them in a territorial fight. They can kick that older bird out of the nest. 
So in a way, the situation that they're in now, even though it's a little bit harder on uh, the older birds, is a more natural situation. Oh, sure. As hard as it is to see a territorial fight, it's a great thing to know that the population is up enough that this is occurring. In the 1960s, when the scientist Jane Goodall was first studying chimpanzees, and she assigned each of them a name, the scientific establishment came down on her in a very unpleasant fashion. That was never done. If anything, individual animals should be assigned numbers. Names were a blatant sign of anthropomorphizing. Even now in science, although it's not so much of a controversy, it's still a source of conversation. Can you tell me why you name the birds? It's really just an easier way of saying, you know, rather than saying black over green, 24 over sideways A, I can say Jill. Plus, when you think of the Peregrine program, what the program really is is a huge network of people that work in the buildings that watch these birds or um, work across the street or they're building managers or office workers or all these people. And it's a lot easier to foster that appreciation of them if you can give a connection. Um, And it's also my way of saying, gee, Jill, thanks for letting me be able to have access to your roof or, you know, to go down to that ledge or to even host that ledge um, to host the birds um, living there. So you you name it and you name it after your daughter or whatever. It's it's my way of being able to say thanks. So you're not the only one that gives them names. You let oh, sometimes the building I, managers I get, give them names. I give them very few. Yeah, Ron Santo was a favorite of mine. So yeah, I, I, every once in a while I'll whip one in, but usually it's other people. My favorite is kids. I love kids and you want to foster that enthusiasm with them um, because there are future scientists in that. And peregrines are, they're adapted to the city. You know, they're in a flower pot. You've got people that winter in the Bahamas (laughs) and they come back and, hey, there's a bird on eggs. They're protected. We can't move the eggs, blah, blah, blah. So this family had them and excited. And then the kids named the brood. And one of them I don't think could come up with a name. He's just whatever. He was eating a banana at the time. (laughs) So he named it Banana Peel. (laughs) That's just one of my favorites. So they have names. Do you feel that the individual birds have individual personalities? There's a bit of a distinction. There's, There's a range of behaviors within the species, and that has to do with breeding cycles and the time of it. So behavior can change. On the other hand, yes, I see individuals that are, some are more aggressive than others. That first bird, Harriet, she would fly past me and she never got close to strike. If you look at the very, very early photos of when I was banding, I did not wear a bike helmet. It took another peregrine to smack me in the head to say, hey, dummy, wear a bike (laughs) helmet. Um, So yeah, yeah, you can see individual personalities to some level. Do you ever feel afraid? Not in the contents that you're thinking, not really. You don't want to do anything stupid. The scariest time might come when you're retrieving those chicks for banding. The aggressiveness increases a hundredfold. Now she's going to essentially fly at you. And a lot of people have been walking around and you get bumped in the head by a red-winged blackbird, nesting red-winged blackbird. And what it's doing is sort of rolling its foot in a little fist. And as it flies past the top of your head, it 
drops the leg and pops you in the head. The flying at you is an intimidation. The popping you in the head is another level of it. Well, peregrines will do the same thing. So you can be, oh, you know, afraid that she's going to, that defending adult um, females and males are going to hurt themselves. You're going to worry that maybe the chicks are going to do, you know, get into trouble trying to back away. But if I know the site and I know the situation, I protect myself, I protect the birds, then there is a comfort level in that. I have a bike helmet that I wear. It's not because if I fall 37 stories, it's going to do me any good. <laughs> it's protection against that adult that might wrap you in the head. So you get to know these birds over such a long period of time since they have such long lifespans. Do you ever feel like you develop some kind of a relationship with any individual bird? No, not not in the way you're thinking, because you really have a very limited exposure. Yes, I can have an affection for them or, or knowledge about them and like a soap opera tell you its little history. But if you're you're asking that question on the reciprocal basis of they have a relationship with me, n- no. They're a wild bird that I see maybe periodically once or twice a year when you're checking the nest. Do you ever find yourself rooting for an individual bird or caring more about a particular bird? I don't think you can't help but root for a particular bird. You're certainly rooting for the species as a whole. Um, But I sort of think of it as a luxury on some level. I I can't afford that luxury to be that fine line of having that level of attachment to it. I see that in a lot of people and, and certainly encourage it. That's fine. The example that popped into mind when you uh, asked the question is we have peregrines nesting on the Evanston Public Library. Wonderful group of people that work in the building and watch her. They have a whole group of people, the Evanston Falcon Watch, that have attached themselves to those pairs. Um, The riskiest time for a peregrine is when it takes its first flight. And when you're on a lower building or something, you know, they occasionally can land in the street. You have an individual woman, Deborah, who, you know, coordinates this group. And they take their vacation time around that time period so they can be around the library 24-7 in case the birds go into trouble. So they have that level of affection and, and, you know, it's like a family member that they have. I have to stay take that step back and be that reasonable scientist. For instance, the very first year they had young and that, they were using flower pots that had been on the side. There were no flowers in there, but, you know, people lined their flower pots with webbing. Well, one of the young had gotten, you know, they're pulling at it and whatnot. Feet were all tucked into it. And so you get a call from the people watching, oh, my God, we have to, you know, and I have to take that step back and go, wait a minute. Okay, the bird is standing up fine. It's standing on a ledge next to the other one. They're about two or three days before fledging. If we react right away, we could risk harming both birds. Let's watch for a few minutes. You know, you can take that. If you don't have that level of attachment that they immediately saw a family member in trouble, you can take better care. Absolutely. And it occurs to me, I think that scientists have this uh, dichotomy with many charismatic species, but it's more acute in your case because scientists that are studying polar bears, there are many thousands of them that are in a population. 
you know, you're you've got thirty. They have names. <laughs> the kind of problems that exist in science in general about getting people to think population wide, rather than just about individuals, are just so much more acute with peregrine falcons in Chicago. Did you have an early experience of nature or of birds that led you in this direction? It was actually vacationing in northern Wisconsin every year. Our family would go up to Vilas County, and I loved it. Some of the earliest memories of being four or five and you're walking the little boat road with my grandmother, looking under the tree to see if the little fawn is, is, is sleeping under there. As you get older, so I, I've always had this love of nature, and I went to school at University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point. It has one of the best wildlife programs going. I had no interest in birds. My interest was in mammals. When I graduated and I came back, I'm from the Chicago area, I started working part-time at the Chicago Academy of Sciences and part-time at the Field Museum, but under two ornithologists. So the Peregrine program was at the Academy, which became my first full-time job. Um, and so Vicki Byer was the lady who sort of, you know, here you can come help work where we're reintroducing the peregrines. I knew of the peregrines and I knew their plight, but I never thought, oh, well, that's, I'm, I'm going towards mammals. I'm not going to go towards birds. And then working for Dave Willard at, at the Field Museum, and I very much am of that organizational personality that, that loves that museum work. But you feed off the enthusiasm of those individuals. And yet, 30-some years later, you know, it's like, yeah, birds are cool. But I don't know that I would have gone that direction if it wasn't for working for those two people. So has the conservation project been successful enough that the peregrine falcon has been removed from the endangered species list? They have at both the federal and state level. The federal one came off in the late 90s, 1999, and Illinois took longer. I don't remember off the top of my head. I want to say it's 2012-ish that it finally came off the Illinois state level. Did you have a big party when that happened? <laughs> I always said we were going to, but as an entire uh, volunteer program, uh, we just all went rah ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's such a validation. That's like getting the, I don't know, that's like getting the Nobel Prize in conservation for helping to move a species from being so badly endangered to the place where they're no longer listed as a federally endangered species. Oh, yeah. I think one of the biggest benefits is actually being able to start as talking peregrines, but then to use that as a jumping off point to talk about, hey, we had this success for them. Let's look at other endangered species, or how can you segue, you know, the story to other conservation issues? You know, what about where it lives? We have to think of, you know, we got pesticides off, but how's the habitat? How's the prey species? If we, we took care of them, but, you know, everything they eat is endangered, well, that's, they're going to get in trouble too. So you, you can be able to talk about the biosystem as a whole, different components. Right. And something that doesn't live on um, rock cliffs is going to have a hard time relocating and changing its habitat to the middle of a city. If they need a deep forest, they're not going to be able to make that kind of move. Yeah. So that's a great example of an incredible win for the peregrine falcon. Can you say a little bit about how you feel about the conservation battle overall? I think everything, if you're going to use the battle, is an ongoing battle. 
on some level. Um, what we hope we can do is use the Peregrine success story as an example to show can we do that with other species? Can we use the Peregrine story and find a way to talk about habitat and how that particular grass is a live, you know, source food for this other animal that then becomes this animal and you work it back up? You know, you need to be thinking of other things as well as just the big flashy thing you see. How does it affect you to wear that hat of the logical thinking scientist? In dealing with peregrines and then dealing with work, I have to take that middle ground. For instance, I have to have the ability to talk to you as a huge peregrine fan of why that building manager, why that building owner can say, you know, we had them nest for the season. I don't want them here. Well, I have to be able to explain to you as the huge fan, you know, they have their right. That's understandable. The birds will be fine. I have to be on that other end to the building owner, the building resident. No, we can't get rid of the eggs. They're protected species. I will help you deal with them living here, but we can't go to the extreme you want. So my way of dealing, I think, with everything is sort of that continual compromiser, middle of the ground, trying to see both sides of the situation, both sides of the conversation, both sides of the opinion, and find that happy compromise to make things work and function as best we can. Right, and just to try to find a path forward. Yeah. Uh, Mary, how do you think you might be different as a person if you hadn't spent these 30 years thinking about and interacting with and planning for the success of falcons? Parents are such a huge component, and nature is a huge component of my life. Um, you know, I might be fine. I might be off doing something else. I certainly don't think I would be in a building wearing a, a suit and tie. I don't, you um, I did when I was in college, you know, I worked a summer in Yellowstone. And I thought, I am never going back to the city. I love this nature around here. My dream job would have been to study social behavior and coyotes. I had to change that whole thinking when I, you come back to the city and you just end up with a situation. You go, wow, 30 years went by and I've been working wildlife still, but in the city. And then it's that great. I wouldn't want to give up the experience I've had, both working in the wild population. And I have two disabled, permanently disabled birds that I use for education. One is a peregrine falcon, another is a red-tailed hawk. There's a singular experience. It's like somebody working with a dog or a pet, and you learn behavior, and you get to see an animal on a different standpoint. I'd hate to think of the thought of a life without having to be able to work with those birds. I can talk all I want to little kids, and you can show all the pretty pictures in the world, but you walk into a room, and you have a red-tailed hawk on your on your arm, it's, wow, oh, wow, you know, it's, you, you've captured their attention in a way. And, you you know, you could talk about how, why this bird isn't wild anymore. You know, how, you know, sometimes we do things with the best intention. You have a, a Cooper's hawk nest in your backyard. Tree blows down. Adults die. The young are almost to fledging. You've watched wildlife programs, you know, well, they're meat eaters, so I'll feed them chicken. You're doing the right thing, but in the wrong way. What you might be doing is imprinting them. And that bird is an imprint. And I can explain how you need to get injured wildlife to license rehabilitators. You know, it's all that kind of experience with that, you know, 
both the urban but still having the wildlife, that I just would not want to give up. As a conservation scientist, what excites you in this field? What are you looking forward to? Kids are what excites me. When you can spark an interest in a kid and get a kid thinking about the environment and things beyond, um, I found that thrilling. I had two young gentlemen who were for a project in their school had to come up with something, and they watched cartoon wildcrats that have episodes on peregrines and wanted to learn about more about peregrines. And we had a discussion of this of, okay, well, here's the peregrine story, but how can it connect to you and what you can do? And they ended up making their own little YouTube video to talk about peregrines in nature and recycling and then segueing on to other species. As much as watching wildlife and just birds are fascinating and an exciting point of what do I do, seeing a future scientist or a young kid get excited about nature and wildlife, that's the biggest thrill I have. Mary, thank you so much for coming in today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. If you're downtown in an American city this week, or if you're in London or Amsterdam, two other cities where peregrine falcons thrive, I hope this conversation with Mary Hennen will encourage you to look up. Defy convention. Stop watching the sidewalk, tilt your head back, and stare up at the buildings. You might see a peregrine falcon wheeling around in between the walls, searching for food at a medium speed, or diving for it at the fastest speed on Earth. This is the final episode of Season 1 of The Shape of the World. Thank you for coming with us on this journey. Join us for Season 2 next spring, starting on Earth Day. And until then... Enjoy looking like a tourist by staring up at the skyscrapers. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce the story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you will end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the beautiful and falcon-filled metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find Shape of the World on Facebook and Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find links to Mary Hennen's website, the web cameras that are trained on Illinois' peregrine nests, and a drawing of Mary by the artist Rose Curley, and much more. Shape of the World's producer is Isabel Vasquez. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Mary Hennen, and the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago.